Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. It's clear from the first couple chapters of 2 Corinthians that Paul and the church in Corinth are having some relationship problems. There seems to be some miscommunication about when Paul was going to visit Corinth again. And Paul kind of tosses up his hands and says, I was just doing what God wanted me to do, so you can't really blame me, right? In the third chapter, Paul tries to refocus the church at Corinth away from human folly and back to their ministry, only made possible through them by the Spirit of God. With boldness, removing the veil of fear and doubt, Paul calls the church in Corinth into renewed ministry. From the fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul shares with us this message. Today's reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Therefore, since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the shameful things that one hides. We refuse to practice cunning or to falsify God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to the conscience of everyone in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in clay jars, so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, 
faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. So, how have you been? If you're like me, you've probably lost count of the number of times you've either heard or asked that question in recent weeks. After 15 months of being mostly apart from each other, there's a lot of catching up to do. We've lost time. We've lost touch. Some of us have lost more hair. The only thing we didn't lose much of is weight. So, how have you been, really? Have you checked in with yourself lately? How are you? Are you great? Are you fine? Thank you very much. Hanging in there. Never been better. Couldn't be worse. Just okay. Not really okay. Living the dream. Barely holding on. Chances are you've been all the above over the last 15 months. Maybe even in a single day. It's been a long, exhausting season of virus dodging and social isolation, decision fatigue, Zoom gloom, and Netflix binging. Where has it all left us? Some psychologists have used the term languishing to describe the emotional and mental effect the pandemic has had on us. Languishing is the neglected middle child of mental health, it's the void between depression and flourishing. It's the absence of well-being. Are you or someone you know languishing? You, or maybe a spouse, a child, a neighbor or coworker? If you're languishing, you don't quite have symptoms of mental illness, but you're not exactly the picture of mental health either. You're not functioning at full capacity. Languishing is a sense of stagnation and emptiness. It feels as if you're muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield. Languishing dulls your motivation. It disrupts your ability to focus. And it's a major risk factor for developing mental illness later. Studies show that the people most likely to experience major depression and anxiety disorders in the next 10 years aren't actually the ones with those symptoms today. They're the people who are languishing right now. The pandemic has taken an emotional, mental, spiritual toll on all of us that none of us has yet to fully comprehend because it's still mostly hidden. Like the tsunami that follows the earthquake in the middle of the ocean. We survived COVID-19, but experts fear there's a mental health crisis gathering momentum beneath the surface that has yet to make it to our shores. As we slowly move into the rhythms and routines of post-pandemic life, I wanna talk honestly today about mental health. We've been exploring the peace prayer over the last several weeks, asking God to 
fashion us into instruments of peace in the world. And the world we know is so divided and imperiled by hatred, unforgiveness, mistrust, distrust. The peace prayer asks that God would not permit us to run from the brokenness of the world, but toward it. Sowing love where there's hatred, forgiveness where there's injury, faith where there's doubt, and as today's line in the prayer says, hope where there is despair. Where there is despair, hope, we pray. Despair, simply put, is the absence of hope. To despair is to lose heart, to give up, to concede that all is lost. And what makes despair such a perilous force in the world and in our lives is that it's mostly hidden. Unlike hatred or anger or even darkness or sadness, you can't always see despair. Rarely do you notice the signs of someone suffering from despair. It's, it's rare that someone would say flatly, I've given up, I'm hopeless. We might admit to languishing, but we fear the stigma associated with depression, hopelessness, and despair. So much so that we hide it and conceal it. We bury it, avoid talking about it or naming it. So can I ask you again, how have you been? Have you checked in with yourself lately? After 15 months of running from the virus, how are you? According to mental health experts, we weren't exactly flourishing mentally or emotionally before the pandemic. Pre-COVID, the numbers of Americans diagnosed with anxiety and depression had reached all-time highs in 2019. The rate of deaths related to alcohol abuse, drug overdose, and suicide, also known as deaths of despair, had more than doubled since the 1970s. The average life expectancy for Americans was on a sustained 10-year decline. Youth and young adults were reporting record levels of loneliness and social isolation. What's changed? since the pandemic began. Well, first, when we talk about mental illness, we are referring to a whole host of conditions that affect a person's thinking, feelings, behaviors, or mood. These conditions impact day-to-day -day living and they often affect the ability to relate to others. These conditions include anxiety, depression, bipolar, addiction, eating disorders, schizophrenia, post-traumatic brain disorder. These are just a few, although the most common mental health condition today is anxiety. Because we can easily get lost in statistics to the point that we begin to see only numbers instead of real people, including ourselves, let me just give you four simple facts. 80% of the population will experience a diagnosable mental health issue in their lifetime. For most people, the condition is temporary. In fact, you're more likely to experience a bout of mental illness than you are to develop diabetes, heart disease, or cancer combined. Number two, one in four Americans suffers from mental illness in any given year. Three, 
one in three young adults, that is 18 to 25 year olds, suffers from mental illness. And lastly, in a September 2020 study, more than one in two young people between the ages of 11 and 17 reported having thoughts of suicide or self-harm more than half or nearly every day of the previous two weeks. In other words, friends, mental illness will personally touch nearly all of us at some point in our lives. So it's not about them, it's about all of us. Mental illness is affecting one quarter of us right now. And mental illness disproportionately affects younger people who are under the age of 25. Study after study has asked young people under the age of 25, what's the number one issue you're facing in your life right now? And hands down, their answer is invariably mental health. But the problem is that we're not talking about it nearly enough, not in society in general, not in our public institutions, not even in most churches. If we get pneumonia, we go to the doctor. If we get a toothache, we go to the dentist. But if we can't stop crying, or we can't stop cutting ourselves, or we can't stop thinking dark, negative thoughts, why do we go into hiding? And why, when we see others suffering from mental illness, why do we go into hiding or denial ourselves? So there's never, never been a more urgent time to pray where there is despair, hope. Whether it's we who are suffering or someone we know or love, the prayer demands that we dare to go into despair. Where do we find it? In our passage from 2 Corinthians today, the Apostle Paul names that place out of which despair often arises. He's writing to a church in Corinth in, in which some of the members there have rejected him, Paul, as a leader. They claim that Paul is too broken to be a leader, that he doesn't have it all together, that he's a complete mess sometimes. Everywhere he went, did you notice that Paul seemed to, to, to fail big time or to bring unnecessary trouble upon himself? Like getting arrested or being spat upon, mocked, beaten, nearly stoned to death. These things just don't happen to good leaders, those people said. If Paul really was God's instrument, they said, wouldn't, wouldn't he have it all together? Wouldn't he be just a little more blessed, a little more successful, a little more perfect? But instead of hiding his defects and his blunders, his mishaps and his sufferings, Paul says that all of these hardships are actually evidence that he's a, more, a lot more like Jesus than all of his critics in Corinth have said. He calls those critics, by the way, super Christians. After all, Paul says, didn't, didn't Jesus get arrested, beaten, spat upon, mocked and killed? Strength and perfection are not the outward and visible signs of a Christian life. Instead, Paul writes, we have this treasure 
in clay jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. Paul's words are such a gift to those for whom perfection is the standard that we can never live up to. His words are a treasure to anyone for whom achievement and success are the sole measure of one's life and happiness. Because Christ dwells in the less than perfect lives like ours, we can survive afflictions, perplexities, and setbacks without despairing. According to nearly every study, the older we get, the less likely we are to suffer from anxiety and depression. Why is this? Or better yet, why is it that those most vulnerable to anxiety and depression are between the ages of 11 and 17? Could it be because the pressure to achieve today is exponentially greater than it's ever been for young people? And that this pressure to achieve creates the conditions by which despair is fueled. Think of it this way. When you're in your, say, 50s, like me, no one really cares what you scored on your SAT. No one's interested in your high school GPA. No one cares that you sat at the cool kids' table in middle school or that you led the baseball team in home runs in high school or that you're the captain of the speech and debate team. What did Bruce Springsteen call those uh, glory days? But likewise, no one cares that you, f you fumbled the football that cost your team the state championship. No one cares that you failed your chemistry final in your junior year or you got rejected by the college of your choice. But when you're 12 or 18 or even 25, it can often seem like everyone cares, like everything depends on the next decision or the next challenge in front of you the final exam, the big game, the college application, the whole world, it seems, just hinges on that one next big thing. And you better not fail. You can feel that pressure when you're 50, too, which is why none of us is immune to anxiety or depression. I mean, the stakes are often high in life. The business deal, the investment portfolio, the family that's depending on you, the staff that's trusting their livelihoods with you, the board that has entrusted the company's future with you. The pressure to achieve is always there. Failure is always a possibility. The question is, when we do fail, when we do fall, will it have a last word? We pray where there is despair, hope. And hope comes not from some safe place that is immune to despair. 
hope is found only in those places where despair is always possible, but is constantly tempered by life perspective. How do you temper despair? How do you cultivate hope in your life? Well, since 80% of us will at some point in our lives experience a bout of mental illness, can I offer you five simple practices to cultivate resiliency and hope in your life? Number one, care for your body. Experts tell us that the three pillars of mental health are sleep, exercise, and diet. And perhaps the most important of these, believe it or not, is sleep. Our brain needs at least seven hours of sleep to rest and recover, to purge itself of unhealthy toxins and cortisol, and to convert short-term memory to long-term memory. One recent study found that the strongest predictor of mental well-being is sleep quality. In addition to sleep, exercising four to five times a week for 20 minutes to 30 minutes a time is proven to help ease depression and anxiety by releasing feel-good endorphins and other natural brain chemicals that enhance your sense of well-being. Exercise takes your mind off worries so you can you can get away from the cycle of negative thoughts that feed depression and anxiety. Our brains need routines because routines give our lives some predictability. And predictability means our brains don't have to make decisions constantly. Having an exercise routine gives our brains a chance to take a breather. And diet is crucial. Our brains are greedy little organs. They actually make up only 2% of our total body weight, but they consume 20% of our daily calorie intake. It turns out that what we really are is what we really eat. Food, it goes right to our head. So stick with mood foods, vegetables, seafood, Fresh herbs, garlic, olive oil, cereal, and grains. Number two, invest in personal and intimate relationships. This is not the same as connecting with people on social media. Maybe you have hundreds, even thousands of friends on Facebook. Congratulations. But guess what? They're not all your friends. In fact, truth be told, some of them don't even like you. They just want to see how much weight you've gained since high school. When someone sends you a sad face emoji on your phone as a way of expressing sympathy, that's not the same thing as having them wrap their arms around you in love. It's not the same thing as talking through your struggles over a cup of coffee with them. It's easy to make friends. It's harder to keep them. Look at the favorites tab on your phone sometime. Who's on that list? Those should be the most important people that you can't live without. Those are the people you ought to invest yourself in. Number three, look for beauty in art and nature. Where do you, where do you go for inspiration and beauty? Where do you experience transcendence and wonder? 
What experiences uh, just take your breath away? Is it climbing a Colorado 14er or camping under the stars? Is it listening to an orchestra or gazing at a Chagall painting or watching the sunset? Neuroscientists, they suggest that we have this area deep inside our brains called the aesthetic system. It was originally essential to our survival. It attracted us to beautiful things like good food and beautiful mates. Our early ancestors found, found them beautiful because they were biologically important to us. But the aesthetic system of the brain, it adapted over time to appreciate other beautiful things like paintings and music, even experiences that generate a sense of wonder and awe. We evolved in such a way that these two are just as biologically important to us as beautiful food and beautiful mates. Beauty and nature have a profound impact on our brains. They help to reduce anxiety, rumination, and stress. They increase our attention capacity, our creativity, our ability to connect with other people. Number four, find a purpose. The Japanese have this wonderful word for this. It's called ikigai. Your ikigai is your reason for being, your reason for getting up out of bed in the morning. What's your ikigai? A recent study suggests that if you feel you have a purpose in life, you're more likely to feel mentally well on a daily basis. Your purpose could be helping to raise your grandchildren. It could be expressing yourself through art or music. It could be helping children learn how to read or singing in the choir or volunteering at the food pantry. If you want to find your purpose, just ask yourself, what do I enjoy doing? What gives me joy? And where, where is there a need in the world for that? Last of all, cultivate the spiritual life. Carl Jung once said that one of the keys to a healthy mind is having, quote, a religious point of view capable of coping successfully with the vicissitudes of life. Faith, in other words, is a way of, of, of looking at the world and making sense of, of what's happening to us. It connects us to something bigger than ourselves. It, it can be a well of strength and hope from which we can draw when we're struggling. It, it connects us to systems of support and friendship and, and community. The writer Anne Voskamp says this, she says, shame dies when stories are told in safe places. Find a safe place, a safe church, where you don't have to be perfect, where you can tell your stories and let your shame die in the company of other imperfect people. Where there is despair, hope, that is our prayer. And as the world slowly returns to the rhythms of post-pandemic life, despair is a very real possibility. You can be the hope. You can bring the hope. 
So take care of yourself. Take good care of your mind. Get help if you need help today. Don't waste another minute if you're suffering from mental illness. Know that you are not alone. Know that 80% of us have either been there or are there or will be there someday. If you're there right now, please get the help you need. And if you're not there, remember that you may be there someday. So today, be intentional about your mental health. Care for your body. Invest in personal and intimate relationships. Look for beauty. Find a purpose. And cultivate the spiritual life. Will you pray with me? Make us instruments of your peace, O Lord, where there is despair in the world, where there is despair in our neighbors, where there is despair in our homes, in our families, in our lives. May we sow hope by your grace. Amen. There is a balm in Gilead that to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.